in your face.
Prince there. What a voice. What a classic. Kind of brings a tear to your eye. Little Red Corvette. You are an in-your-face on 3CR with James. Well, the Trans Justice Project and the Victorian Pride Lobby have released the Fueling Hate Report. And earlier today, I spoke with the co-convener of the Victorian Pride Lobby, Austin Fabry Jenkins. Austin, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, James. It's good to be here. It's great to have you back on board. Uh, the Fueling Hate Report is pretty landmark. What were the findings? Yeah, so uh, we've been conducting research for this report uh, for a couple of months over April and May. Uh, we had over 3,000 community members respond and over 1,300 of those community members identified as trans and gender diverse. But it's important to remember that the findings from this report also include the views of cisgender allies and what they were witnessing. Um, Now, it's a lot of things that transgender people would already know are included in the findings, and that's that anti-trans hatred is unfortunately still rife in Australia. So we had 47% of the trans and gender diverse participants had experienced in-person anti-trans abuse, harassment, vilification or violence in the last 12 months. And 15% of transgender participants had experienced anti-trans violence in the last 12 months, which likely recommends many, many unrecorded hate crimes, unfortunately, in this country. But what's more important about this report is, and what we were really looking for, is that it found that this anti-trans hatred is actually on the rise. So 83% of all the participants, including the cisgender ones, said that they saw significantly more online anti-trans hatred compared to 2020. And 23% of the trans participants experienced more or significantly more in-person anti-trans abuse in the previous two months. And 68% of the participants saw more online anti-trans hatred in the two months prior to the survey. And it's that two-month timeline that's really, really important to us because it coincides with Posey Parker's anti-trans speaking tour. Um, and so we as advocates obviously had a pretty strong hypothesis that that speaking tour was really going to fuel anti-trans hatred. And what this report shows is that the evidence backs that up and that's what the community was feeling too. And so vital to have this information because we need government leadership, but also leadership in the media to counteract uh, this hatred. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's it's interesting to see a report and it, it is a very dark report and it's a kind of horrific thing to have to read and publish. But in some ways, as a trans person myself, I find it oddly empowering because I think one of the things that decision makers will say or the media will say or the people who are against us say is that, you know, the experiences that we have of anti-trans hatred and abuse and how those coincide with the rhetoric in the media and the rhetoric in our political sphere, people will tell us that it's not really happening. And so to be able to kind of collectively come together and provide that data and then have it in a concrete, citable format of, you know, we've done the research, this is a real thing, our experiences are very real and we're all experiencing them. It's quite an empowering thing to have that as a tool in our toolkit for advocacy. It's unbelievable that people are saying to the trans and gender diverse community that it doesn't exist. What gaslighting? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it is just gaslighting and that that is uh, something that you will see, uh, particularly in the space of, you know, conservatives who are anti-trans who are cosplaying as feminists at the moment will often say that the abuse we experience isn't real. Recommendations in fueling hate. Uh, what, what What's there? Yeah, so... Uh, 
main recommendation for the headline is that we really need state and federal governments to deliver anti-vilification protections for the whole LGBTIQA plus community. Um, and those vilification protections don't actually exist in every legislature. So we certainly do not have them in Victoria currently. Um, in Victoria currently, we have an act called the Racial and Religious Tolerance Act, which protects people from vilification and hate speech on the basis of their race and religion. Now, that is incredibly important. People need those protections for those attributes, but it doesn't make any sense to me that only two of our protected attributes would be covered under that act. So that is kind of a headline for us as the Pride Lobby is that we're really trying to push the state government to deliver on those reforms sooner rather than later to protect us from hate speech. Uh, some other recommendations from in there were basically to investigate media and social media regulations that can prevent the spread of anti-trans disinformation and tackle online anti-trans abuse and also funding into research for grassroots interventions that combat extremism. And I don't think any of these recommendations are new. Most of these recommendations are also touched upon in the 2021 Legislative Assembly inquiry into vilification as well. The Victorian government has made that commitment to act on, on vilification. Where are they at? At the moment, we, we seem to be getting a rolling 18-month uh, timeline from the government, uh, which is kind of why LGBTIQA plus organisations are being so strong on this and so consistent in why it's a need. Uh, I really feel, you know, this inquiry happened in 2021. It was then included in the state government's own roadmap for LGBTIQA plus equality, but they really dragged their feet on it. And we at, at the Pride Lobby have been advocating for it for almost nine months now as a top priority for the community this year. So what we're really trying to do is stay vigilant and make sure that that 18-month timeline is at least set in stone and that we're able to get these reforms as soon as we possibly can. Because, honestly, with what we've seen this year with the abuse that local councils and local libraries have faced running LGBTIQA plus youth events, we needed these reforms yesterday. So we're trying to remain vigilant and make sure that we actually get them. Yeah, I mean, you know, say 12 months ago, that 18 months might have seemed reasonable, but now with this escalating situation, uh, which is rolling pretty quickly, uh, you're right, we need action now. Yeah, exactly. And the, the state government is able to deliver on these things fairly quickly uh, when they see it as a priority. You know, for example, we've recently seen the ban on uh, the Nazi salute that's heading into the parliament uh, pretty much this week. So... When they feel the need to move quickly, they can move really quickly. And that ban on the Nazi salute I support because I take my lead from, you know, the Jewish community on this, and I think we should get it done. But it, it seems odd that that can move so quickly, but our own vilification reforms that keep getting pushed back. You mentioned uh, regulation online. Um, how realistic is that, considering you've got people like Elon Musk uh, controlling X? Yes, uh, very, very difficult, um, but this is something that was actually covered uh, in Fiona Patton's original bill in 2019, which then led to the vilification inquiry. Um, the main point of Fiona Patton's original bill wasn't actually to extend protections to the LGBTIQA plus community, although we did end up getting included in that bill. It was actually about uh, being able to find out the identities of people who were engaging in some pretty horrendous abuse and targeted harassment of women MPs at the time. Um, and that's something 
that we still need in this state. We still need the ability for uh, someone to be able to find out from a social media company or at least request the information if they're experiencing ongoing abuse and harassment, which is having a real impact in their real lives. And often it does. We see a lot of doxing happening at the moment to particularly the trans community, then they should be able to get that information. And I think social media companies also have a responsibility to prevent violent crimes from happening on their platforms. You mentioned federal anti-vilification law before. Um, Where's the Albanese government on that? Uh, That is a difficult question. So you you might have seen recently it was in the Labor Party's platform to extend vilification protections uh, to a broader subject, subsection of the community. Um, that was attempted to be brought out of the national platform a few months ago, but due to a backlash from grassroots Labor Party members who moved a lot of motions in their branches, um, that was then put back into the national party platform. So... We did get a small win there and that we were able to keep it in, but the fact that someone tried to take it out in the first place suggests that we've got a lot of work to do in the federal space to try to get the Albanese government on board with the reforms that the LGBTIQA plus community needs. Because, I mean, if Victoria's lagging behind, imagine some of the other states like Western Australia and Queensland, that federal protection is very needed for those folks over there. Yeah, I believe we do actually have some vilification protections in some other states that are usually more conservative than Victoria. For example, I believe we have them in New South Wales, but uh, I'm not an expert on all of the other jurisdictions. Um, It's certainly... The thing with the vilification reforms that we're fighting for in Victoria and what makes it so interesting in a way is they're not... We're not going for brand-new legislation this isn't like the conversion practices law and it's not like birth certificate reform where we're trying to lead the country. There's examples of this legislation existing in other state governments already. We just need to kind of get a wriggle on and actually get them in place for ourselves. You've been in the role as the co-convener of the Victorian Pride Lobby since just before the state election last year. What's the experience been like for you? Oh, hectic. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I mean, I love it. It's a, it is a privilege to be able to be in a position uh, to advocate for the community. And I, you know, I have a deep love for the community, and that's the only thing that I think keeps driving me every day. Is you know, I think that we deserve to be treated with respect, and I think that we deserve to be organised and and treated as the experts in our own lives. And that's kind of what drives me every day. But. I have to say, when I took over the role, I was expecting us to be doing more kind of proactive campaigning in the federal space for transgender rights. I didn't expect that we would be, you know, on the coalface of fighting (laughs) rising extremism and fascism in Australia. But that's kind of where we've landed. And, you know, as hard as it is, I'm, I'm very glad to be here and I'm very glad to kind of be standing side by side with the whole community in this fight. You were the driving force behind the Pride Lobby's rally for Trans Day of Visibility. And I've got to say, it was wildly successful. And I think I can't remember the last time the lobby organised a rally. Yeah, I'm not sure if we ever had. Uh, Yeah, I I just felt like that was what the community needed at that point. Um, And, you know, there wasn't... Uh, There was a lot of fear in the community when I raised it as an idea, but it really just kind of hit me that 
I feel often when something really bad happens to the trans community, there is a tendency for people to feel like we need to be wrapped up in cotton wool. And while there are plenty of very, very vulnerable trans people in our community that we do need to protect and that we, you know, particularly myself as an older, more privileged trans person, you know, I need to wrap them up and protect them from the violence and the hatred that's occurring at the moment. But there's a whole bunch of others of us that just get very, very angry and just want to do something to kind of, you know, go get out there and show that the community doesn't have to be afraid and that we're stronger and we have the critical mass. And that's really why I wanted to do it. And, yeah, I don't think the Pride Lobby has ever organised a rally before, but if you want something to happen, you just kind of got to do it yourself without worrying about the consequences sometimes. So you're saying there was resistance within the community about the lobby uh, organising that rally for Trans Day of Visibility because of concerns, fears of backlash? Like, what was that about? Yeah, I think people, certain people I spoke to, so I had uh, quite a few trans friends and comrades that I spoke to before and said, what would you think about this idea? And quite a few of them said, I think that's amazing. Um, and, you know, it was modelled off the... It's modelled off the Reclaim the Night style rallies that um, the women's movement used to organise when there would be a murder of a woman, they would organise these to say they weren't afraid and they were going to reclaim the night. So it was modelled off that, and I think a lot of trans folks got that and went, that feels kind of exactly what I need. Um, but there were certainly other, you know, trans friends that I had who I spoke to who were really afraid about the prospect of, of doing that and going, you know... What if it's really, really small? What if neo-Nazis turn up? What if we can't manage the risks of actual fascists? But, and all of those were concerns of mine too, but I just kind of looked at the energy of the community and where we were at and went, you know what, I just back myself here. I think we're going to get at least 1,000 people, and I don't think the neo-Nazis can turn out more than 30, and I think that we can we can handle that. And as it turned out, you know, if it hadn't have rained, we would have probably got 10,000 people and the 5,000 who did turn up was just incredible and no fascist was ever going to be able to disrupt it. Well, I think it made the right call. It was a fantastic event, great turnout, and I've got to say brilliant, very heartfelt, passionate speeches. Yeah, I was very happy with the speakers we got. We were, I, I had a little collective of activists working on that and, you know, we had a few parameters about we had to make sure that yeah, there were plenty of people of colour represented and that we had Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander trans folks speaking. And I think that having those rules and parameters for ourselves with who we reached out to really made it quite a beautiful event. Can we expect more rallies? Oh, it was quite hard. <laughs> um, but I think if something if something happens again that piques my interest where I feel like we need a rally, then, you know, I'm not going to rule it out. Uh, it was It was a pretty amazing day. Austin Fabry Jenkins, uh, the co-convener of the Victorian Pride Lobby. A pleasure to hear your voice and uh, keep up the fight. Thanks very much. Have a good day.
mode there enjoy the silence up soon rodney croom to talk about the expungement of historical criminal convictions in tasmania but in the meantime here's mazzy star with blue flower
There you are, and in your face on 3CR with James. I'm delighted to have Rodney Croom back on the show. Rodney, welcome back. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on. Rodney, uh, the Tasmanian government has announced plans or released legislation, draft legislation, to expand its law in relation to expunging uh, historical criminal convictions uh, for the gay and trans and queer community. What can you tell us about their plans? Well, it was um, 2016 that the Tasmanian Parliament passed legislation to expunge uh, 
historical criminal records for uh, gay men and uh, trans women. Um, that was unique in Australia because uh, although other states had passed similar legislation in relation to men who have sex with men, um, Tasmania was the only state historically that banned uh, cross-dressing. Uh, uh, men who were biological males or born males <clears throat> um, uh, could be arrested if they wore any item of women's clothing right up until the year 2000. And that law was used uh, quite vindictively and cruelly against trans women in Tasmania. So um, in 2016, this law went through, and that was a great step forward. The then uh, Premier of Tasmania, Will Hodgman, apologised for uh, the old laws, uh, which was very moving for us, given that, like I said, those trans laws weren't repealed in 2000. Tasmania was the last state to have criminal laws against homosexuality. Um, but those laws were pretty clearly in need of some reform um, soon after they were passed because there weren't very many applications and the application process could be seen as difficult by some people, particularly elderly men. Um, so there was a review of the legislation and that came up with a number of recommendations uh, to make the process easier, to advertise the fact that, that expungement was possible more widely and um, most of all, most significantly of all, uh, to have a kind of redress scheme, uh, scheme where um, people who successfully expunged their criminal records would be uh, uh, would qualify for compensation for the fact that they were charged and convicted under our old laws. Um, this was the first time that idea had been uh, proposed in Australia, and um, uh, it was something that was very strongly supported by Equality Tasmania and other groups. Um, and uh, the government has finally released its response to that review, which unfortunately doesn't include that redress scheme. Um, that's very disappointing from our point of view because we think it would be uh, a really important step forward, not just for Tasmania, but as a, a way forward for the rest of the nation as well. And um, we're, we'll be pushing hard now over the next few weeks to make sure that uh, any reforms to this legislation uh, do include this uh, scheme for compensation. It sounds a bit mean-spirited that they haven't included compensation, especially as people are getting older, but also the fact that they have suffered so much trauma, you know, by being criminalised unfairly. Uh, and it seems a bit mean of the government to kind of get people's hopes up and then not deliver. Yes, it is. Um, uh, you're right that the the experience of people who were convicted under these old, old laws was always traumatic. Um, uh, the people I've spoken to who were convicted, um, they, they their names are in the newspaper, uh, because because of, of course they appeared in they appeared in court, the Supreme Court. Um, the ones I've spoken to weren't sent to jail; they were fined, but still there was deep ignominy, and um, they all left Tasmania uh, as soon as they possibly could, uh, and never came back. Um, so it wasn't just uh, them who. <laughs> <laughs> whose lives were damaged, Tasmania lost them. Um, and, of course, before that, in decades earlier, there were men um, and trans women who uh, uh, were sent to jail. Um, and we know that, um, you know, that that permanently wrecked their lives um, and sometimes led to them to take their own life. So, yes, the trauma is deep um, and it seems only fair 
that there should be redress available for these people, particularly because, as you said, most of them are very elderly now, um, and they need a sign that the state doesn't just think they shouldn't be criminals anymore, that it actually cares about what they went through. Um, this is an important issue, I think, this issue of redress or compensation, and not only in this sphere of former criminal records. It's important, I think, uh, for instance, on the issue of um, gay, lesbian, bi and trans people being drummed out of the military because of who they were um, up until the early 90s for gay and lesbian people and later for trans people. Um, I think there's a case for compensation there as well. Um, we need to be saying to the nation that it's not just us who should pay the price for prejudice and discrimination. Um, uh, the, the government needs to show leadership on this and to say that the whole of society will bear the cost of prejudice and discrimination. Um, and this, I think, is an important first step in that process. That's why it's so important for us to make sure that this redress is available for those who were um, unfairly, unjustly and traumatically treated in the past. So how is the Tasmanian government justifying not including compensation in this draft bill? Well, it's not. It's just ignoring the fact that that was the recommendation of community organisations and also of the independent review that was conducted of the expungement legislation. It hasn't made a statement about it at all, which is disappointing. Um, I've been told that uh, there are one-off payments that the Treasurer can make um, to those who apply for uh, compensation, um, uh, you know, on any matter. But um, that's, not what we're talk that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about people having to go through a second application process once their expungement in co is completed. Um, the recommendation in the independent review was that it should be automatic, and uh, that's what we're saying. It should be an automatic payment to anyone whose records are successfully expunged because that shows clearly that they had a record and that they were treated unfairly by the law. Um, we won't accept a, a second-class process. Um, we want a process where redress is automatically available for people who were mistreated in the past. It sounds like the Tasmanian Premier's got his head in the sand if he thinks that, you know, um, there's a call for compensation and they don't include it in the draft legislation and then don't say why and expect the community just not to say anything and for momentum to build. I mean, you know, there's so many successful activists and campaigns that occurred in Tasmania in relation to queer issues. It's a bit naive of the Premier to think, you know, just don't, don't explain it and hope it'll go away. I don't think that they expect it to go away <laughs> because you're right, there are, there are too many people who are upset about this and who will campaign on it. Um, and uh, even if the government doesn't change its legislation, even if it doesn't include um, a redress scheme, then we'll be seeking that amendment in Parliament um, and uh, it will be, and you know, it'll be an issue both inside Parliament and in the community. Um, and it's a shame that it has to be an issue because... Like I said before, Tasmania was the last state to decriminalise homosexuality and the only state to criminalise cross-dressing. And as some of your listeners will remember, that was getting those laws changed caused a, caused a huge fuss. It was the most uh, bitter and polarising debate um, on these issues in Australian history um, that involved the UN and the federal government and the High Court and Amnesty International and all the rest. 
Uh, and we all like to think now in Tasmania that we've moved beyond that, that that's part of the past, that we're no longer like that. Um, but if we can't deal adequately with the legacy of the past, if we're still having trouble with it, then clearly we haven't all moved on. How many people are we talking about, Rodney? How many, how many would you estimate would be uh, affected by this legislation and who would possibly seek our compensation? It's really hard to say how many. Um, uh, I, I, I know that, that the laws were enforced up until um, the mid-80s, so there were still men who were being fined uh, for consenting sex in private up until about 1984. Um, so, and obviously those men would, some of those men would still be alive, whether they would apply, um, for expungement if, if the scheme was better advertised and if there was redress, it's, it's hard to know. I assume that they were more likely to, um, but even if it's just one, (laughs) even if it's just one, that's enough to make a change to the law to show that we care about what happened in the past um, and we're going to make up as a society, um, try and make up for what happened. So you're saying, Rodney, that in the early 1980s, men who have sex with men were being convicted for having sex with each other in the privacy of their own homes in Tasmania? Yep. Wow. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. Um and they didn't go to jail at that stage. Jail had been uh, the preferred punishment up until the 1970s. Um, I know that there were also men, um, one of whom is still alive, uh, who were given a choice by the courts, by the Supreme Court, of jail or um, aversion therapy, like electric shock therapy. Um, and he took electric shock therapy rather than jail, that was in the 1970s. So really Um, we're asking the government to compensate people for cruel and unusual punishment. Yes. Yes, There wouldn't be a single person of right mind in Australia today who would think that sticking someone in in an electric chair because they were same-sex attracted was a good idea. Um, Most Australians and most Tasmanians would be revolted by that and would agree that um, if that person is still around, which at least in one case I know they are, uh, that they should be compensated. Of course they should. It's a matter of, matter of, of plain, straight, old-fashioned justice. I mean, it's amazing when you think about it, isn't it? And also just consider the police resources that were going into basically spying on people and uh, and convicting them for having sex in the privacy, you know, of their own home to adults. Um, imagine the police resources that went into it. Um, yes. Uh, the cases I'm aware of, uh, the, the men would be, uh, would be found out, if you like, uh, sometimes incidentally. Uh, incidental to a, to an investigation about some other crime, you know that it might have occurred in that street, and the police are going around and questioning to see if, who saw what, something, and then they find there's two guys in the house and there's only one bed, and then off they go. So um, sometimes it wasn't the police hanging around outside the window. Some, sometimes it was uh, discovered incidentally. Um, but yeah, when I came out in 1987. I was warned by those older than me, gay men older than me, that the police had a so-called pink list of known homosexuals who they could arrest at any time uh, and that I should be careful about not getting on that list. 
Um, uh, I, not long after that, I became part of the gay law reform group and was probably definitely on the list. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, the Tasmania that I came out into was a police state. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, LGBTIQA plus people were terrified of the police. Um, and uh, with good reason, because of these recent arrests that had occurred right up until just a few years before I came out. Romney, has the Tasmanian government or the Tasmanian police ever confirmed or acknowledged that pink list? No. But it's not. It's it's quite plausible it existed, especially when you consider the attitudes in Tasmania, uh, the government's attitudes, and the punitive policing. Oh yes, absolutely. It's quite believable, um, and the uh, information about that would come from uh, that was uh, closeted gay men who were high up in the public sector in the public service. Uh, would talk about the police having a pink list and being afraid that they might be on it and therefore targeted um, for blackmail or whatever it might be. Yeah, so there was concern in quite high places that this list existed, and it's perfectly credible. Um, You just had to see the response to us when we first came out as a law reform group and had a little stall at Salamanca Market to get petitions on the signature, signatures on the petition, the um, Hobart City Council banned our stall and the police came in and arrested us all. Um, it was a very punitive place if you were gay or trans. Tell us a bit more about the arrest process. Like you were taken to the police station. Um, I presume you were held for some time. Yes. Yes, so uh, like I said, we had a stall at Salamanca Market, uh, a stall which is still there every Saturday, um, and uh, the council wanted to close it down because it didn't want any, quote, homosexuals in its family market, unquote. Uh, we set the stall up anyway because we felt that that was discrimination, and then the police came in and we were arrested. Uh, anyone associated with the stall, anyone carrying one of our petitions, anyone with a poster that had the words gay or lesbian on it or a pink triangle could be arrested. Um, and uh, taken away to the main police station in Hobart in Liverpool Street. Um, Some were let go, and some who were considered leaders were kept in solitary cells for indefinite periods. So that's what happened to me. I was kept uh, for I didn't know how long, um, uh, sometimes into the evening. Uh, So that that would have been six or seven hours or so. and we were threatened with jail if we returned to Salamanca Market the next week. So they said, um, if you go back there, then um, you will be uh, you'll be straight off to Brisbane Prison. Just incredible and uh, so torturous, so unjust. Uh, and just so harsh, and no wonder people were living in fear, and no wonder uh, people need compensation for that for that treatment. Uh, it begs belief that the Premier is burying his head in the sand on this issue and is just hoping it'll go away. Because um, you have outlined, you know, incredibly strong reasons for why compensation is absolutely necessary. Um, yeah, so... You're right when you say the situation was harsh. The word I'd probably use is cruel. There was a there was a very overt um, 
element of cruelty in the way that sexual and gender minorities were treated in Tasmania um, in the past, uh, sometimes calculated cruelty, and the trauma is impossible to quantify. I mean, no amount of money could ever compensate for uh, families losing loved ones to suicide or, or, you know, to immigration to other states and never returning, um, or, or to the ignominy of having your name in the newspaper and losing your job and losing your family and losing everything. Um, if we're going, as a society, if we're going to move beyond that legacy, if we're going to recognise it and, and address it and move beyond it, this is a crucial element. And the case that I've put to you today, James, you can be sure that we'll be putting that case to the government um, and to the rest of the parliament. Uh, the government doesn't have the numbers in either house to be able to uh, stop amendments, so I'm hopeful that we'll be able to amend this legislation to get real justice for people who suffered in the past. Are any politicians speaking out in support of Equality Tasmania's demands for compensation? Uh, yes, politicians have spoken out in the past in support of this idea when it's been uh, in the media. Um, because we're at a consultation stage with this bill, uh, then uh, I guess most MPs are waiting to see what the government will finally come up with, and then it'll be on for young and old. Rodney, on a much more constructive and happier note, uh, pretty amazing scenes today with Bridget Archer campaigning with the Prime Minister in Launceston on The Voice. Yes, that was wonderful. And also the Premier, uh, Jeremy Rockliffe. Um, uh, it was good to see them presenting a non-partisan face to the issue because the debate has become a little bit politically divided or like party divided. And that's never a good thing on such an important issue. Uh, people will remember the postal survey in 2017. Um, Labor was in support of a yes vote, and so were quite a few Liberals. And that took a lot of the heat out of it. So it's great to see, um, like the partisan bickering, it's great to see some Liberals um, coming on board with this. That will really help, particularly in Tasmania where uh, support is dropping. I mean, it is in other states as well. Um, but every state counts. As, as you know, in a referendum, uh, we need four of the six states to vote in favour, um, and Tasmania's r- like right on the, on the cusp. So um, uh, every vote's going to count in Tasmania on this, and it's good to see Bridget Archer and Jeremy Rockcliffe out there. Rodney, the narrative seems to be that the voice is doomed. Uh, to what extent do you think it's salvageable? And is that narrative kind of beneficial because people think, oh, well, look, you know, it's dead in the water, so maybe I will vote yes? Um, I, I've found a lot, a lot of um, elderly Anglo people in the in Tasmania who I speak to, who are undecided or maybe a bit sceptical. Uh, that it's, it is possible to convince them to support the yes vote. I don't think it's over yet at all. Um, they wouldn't necessarily show up as yeses in opinion polls, but they're potential yeses. Uh, and it's just really up to the Yes campaign to find a way to reach them. Um, when I look at the images that are put out by the Yes campaign, uh, there's a lot of Aboriginal people, which is great because we need Aboriginal voices there. Obviously, it's about their voices um, and others as well. But but if I was like a 70-year-old Anglo-Australian living in a regional area, I wouldn't see anyone like me 
telling me why this matters, why I should vote yes. I just don't see those images and those figures. Um, the Yes campaign needs to expand, uh, its, it, and hopefully it will over the next few weeks, expand the spokespeople so that there are genuine, credible spokespeople to that demographic, older Anglo-Australians and regional and suburban areas. Um, they're the ones who are going to decide, and uh, they need to hear from people who look and sound and feel like them. They're not, they're not, they're not a, like I said, they're not definite no's. They're on the fence, or maybe slightly over the fence towards no, but they can come back, and really the focus needs to be on them. Hopefully the, the focus group people in Canberra understand that. Yeah, hopefully they have a plan. Hopefully it's a grand plan and uh, this has all been put in place for a really concerted late run. Uh, Rodney Croom, always great to hear your voice on 3CR and thank you so much for, for sharing your insights. It's always truly wondrous. Thank you so much. Thanks, James. Bye. The wonderful Rodney Croom there.
Pearl Jam there, and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs>